0: Chapter Sixteen of One of My Sons by Anna Katherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen in the Parlor at Mrs. Penryn's. Meantime, the will of Mr. Gillespie had been admitted to probate, but as he had never made any secret of his intentions, and the share and share alike of his sons had been left without a disturbing codicil. Little help was afforded by its terms in settling the harassing problem which more than ever occupied the minds of the community, and presented itself as an almost unanswerable puzzle to the police. Even Mr. Grice, whose sagacity no one could doubt, showed how unpromising the affair looked to him by the line of care which now made its appearance on his forehead, a forehead which had remained singularly unclouded till now notwithstanding his sixty or more years of experience with such knotty problems this i had occasion to note in an interview i held with him some few days after the rendering of the above-mentioned verdict he had sought me with the intention of satisfying himself that the ground had been thoroughly gone over and no possible clue had been ignored but he gained nothing new from me not even my secret and went away at last looking older and more careworn than my first view of his benevolent and naturally composed countenance had led me to expect but while moved by this to consider the seriousness with which these men regarded their duty i was much more deeply impressed by the corresponding marks of secret disturbance which i presently discovered in my own countenance FOR IN MY CASE THE TROUBLE INDICATED DID NOT DEPEND UPON THE SETTLEMENT OF AN EXCITING CASE, BUT WAS THE RESULT OF A LASTING IMPRESSION MADE UPON ME BY A WOMAN WHO GAVE LITTLE SIGN OF SHARING A PASSION, LIKELY TO PROVE THE ONE ABSORBING EXPERIENCE OF MY LIFE. DO WHAT I WOULD, I COULD NOT FORGET HER OR THE POSITION SHE HELD AMONG THESE THREE MEN. WAS SHE STILL THE OBJECT OF GEORGE'S ATTENTIONS, OR WORSE STILL, OF ALFRED'S PASSIONATE HOPES? did she respond to the latter's devotion, or was she still restrained by doubts of an innocence not yet entirely proved? I longed to know, I longed to see for myself how she bore all these uncertainties. But no excuse offered itself for a second intrusion upon her privacy, even if I had been sure I should find her still living with her cousins and in this unrest and state of anxious waiting the days went by till suddenly I heard it casually mentioned at the club that Miss Meredith was with a distant connection of the Gillespie's in 57th Street. This was like fire to tow. Without waiting to question my own motives or to ask whether it would be for my happiness or misery to see her again, I called at the Penryn Mansion and inquired for Miss Meredith. To my great relief and consequent delight, she consented to receive me, and I presently found myself seated in a choice little reception-room, awaiting her coming. Only then did I begin to realize my own temerity. With what words should I accost her? How open conversation without suggesting griefs I was burning to make her forget! I had no time to decide. She was at the door and in the room before my mind could frame the simplest greeting— and once brought face to face with her, I forgot everything but herself and the irresistible charm which her presence exerted over me. She had been weeping, and I could not but see that the sight of my face recalled scenes suggestive of the deepest suffering. In my dismay I fell my tongue and attempted some conventional expressions of goodwill. These she no sooner heard than she cut me short by an irrepressible exclamation. Pray! she entreated. You have been with me during a time of too much misery for such formalities as these to pass between us. Then before I could protest, what is wanted of me now? I know you desire explanations of some kind. Everybody does who approaches me, even my best friends. Yet I unburdened myself of everything I knew that first night. I may have looked hurt. I certainly felt so but she did not notice this result of her abrupt attack. She was too full of the feverish anxiety roused by the subject she had herself introduced. "'But you are a just man, and a good one,' she went on. "'I do not need to be told so. I see it in your face. You will be honest with me, and will at least acquaint me with the motives underlying any questions you may put. Others deceive me and lead me into confidences they afterwards turn against me, or against those I have reason to be true to, though I was the first to betray them. Her cheek, so pale at her entrance, was burning red now, and she spoke quickly, almost disconnectedly. I saw that she needed rallying, and smiled. Now it is you who are pressing the subject you abhor. I have not asked you anything. I shall not. I have not come here to satisfy either my curiosity or the demands of the law. I AM HERE TO INQUIRE AFTER YOUR HEALTH, AND TO RENEW MY OFFER OF SERVICE. MAY I BE EXCUSED FOR MY INTEREST IN YOURSELF? IT IS INVOLUNTARY ON MY PART, AND SO SINCERE THAT YOUR UNCLE, WERE HE LIVING, COULD NOT OBJECT TO IT. SOOTHED BY MY VOICE, AS MUCH AS BY MY WORDS, SHE SAT DOWN AND ENDEAVORED TO OPEN CONVERSATION but there was a constraint in her manner which convinced me that she was laboring under a too vivid remembrance of the scene where we had last met. "'What a position is mine!' burst at last from her lips. "'I have three natural protectors, yet I do not know of an arm on which I can place my hand with implicit confidence. "'This is my reason for being in this house, and why I hail with eagerness—too great eagerness, perhaps—the prospect of a friend.' it was an appeal for which i found myself poorly prepared especially as it was made with such simplicity and in such evident disregard of the feelings which made my presence there of such import to myself it recalled to me her position and remembering that she was a comparative stranger in town and that since her coming she had been all in all to her uncle in capacities which had kept her much at home and out of the society where she might have made friends, and found support in this dreadful emergency. I composed myself, and, leaning forward, took her hand in mine, with a respect she could not but feel, since it permeated my whole being. "'I am a stranger to you,' was my plea, notwithstanding the vivid experiences which have brought us together." YOU KNOW LITTLE OF ME BEYOND MY NAME and THE FACT THAT MY ONE WISH, SINCE FIRST SEEING YOU, HAS BEEN TO SERVE YOU AND SAVE YOU FROM EVERY POSSIBLE ANNOYANCE. THIS MUST BE OBVIOUS TO YOU, OR YOU WOULD NOT HAVE ACCEPTED ME SO UNHESITATINGLY FOR YOUR LAWYER. WILL YOU ADD TO THIS TITLE, A TITLE WHICH YOU HAVE YOURSELF GIVEN ME, THE MORE PERSONAL ONE YOU HAVE JUST MENTIONED? WILL YOU LET ME BE THE FRIEND YOU NEED? YOU CAN FIND NO TRUER ONE. SHE BROKE INTO A CONFUSED STAMMERING, AMID WHICH I HEARD, I WILL, YOU GIVE ME CONFIDENCE. THEN SHE SAT STILL, HER HAND TREMBLING IN MINE, AND HER EYES SHINING WITH A NEW LIGHT. IT WAS AN INNOCENT ONE, THAT OF A CHILD WHO HAS STUMBLED ON A PROTECTOR IN THE DARK. BUT TO ME IT WAS THE VERY GLOW OF HEAVEN, THE FIRST RAY OF PROMISE BY MEANS OF WHICH I COULD DISCERN, EVEN IN FANCY, THE FAIRY LAND OF MY DREAMS. WAS IT ANY WONDER IT INTOXICATED ME? FORGETTING THAT I HAD NOT BEEN TO HER ALL THAT SHE HAD BEEN TO ME FOR THE LAST FEW WEEKS, FORGETTING EVERYTHING BUT THAT SHE WAS AN UNHAPPY WOMAN WHOM I PASSIONATELY LOVED, I GAZED IN HER FACE AS A MAN GAZES AT A WOMAN BUT ONCE IN A LIFETIME. SHE DID NOT LOWER HER EYES, WOULD THAT SHE HAD but met my looks with a half-smile whose open and indulgent kindness should have warned me to recover my ground while it was safe. But a sudden madness had seized me, and seeing simply that it was a smile, I found it impossible to realize in the frenzy of the moment that the feelings I had hitherto ascribed to her were true. She had liked, not loved, her cousins, they had been good to her and in return she had given them a cousinly regard which in one instance perhaps approached the warmth of love but it was a love far from necessary to her life or so i dared dream while my passion for her was a part of my being so close a part that i felt forced to speak and claim her as my own in this hour of her greatest trouble and perplexity before i knew it before she had time to restrain me by word or look I was pouring out my soul before her. Not in the respectful, measured way I had foreseen when looking forward to this hour, but wildly, hotly, as a man speaks when the treasure of his life is to be won by one strong effort. It was sudden, it was perhaps unwarranted, but my sincerity moved her. That was perhaps why she listened so patiently, AND IT WAS TO THIS RECOGNITION OF MY CANDID REGARD I ATTRIBUTE THE LOOK OF WISTFULNESS WHICH CREPT OVER HER FEATURES WHEN I CEASED. OH! she murmured, why cannot I accept the love of this good man? AND, RISING UP, SHE WALKED AWAY FROM ME TO THE OTHER END OF THE ROOM. BREATHLESSLY I WATCHED HER, BREATHLESSLY I NOTED HER WALK, THE droop OF HER HEAD, THE AGITATED WORKING OF HER HANDS. WOULD MY GOOD ANGEL STAND BY ME AND TURN HER TREMBLING HEART MY WAY, OR MUST I PREPARE MYSELF TO SEE HER PAUSE, TURN, AND COME BACK TO ME WITH DENIAL IN HER LOOKS? THE SUSPENSE OF THAT MOMENT I SHALL NEVER FORGET. IT HAS NEVER BEEN REPEATED IN MY EXPERIENCE, NEVER SINCE HAVE I SUFFERED SO MUCH IN ANY ONE MOMENT. SUDDENLY IT WAS ALL OVER. SHE TURNED, AND I READ MY DOOM IN HER SORROWING FACE. You are good, she cried, and it would be an infinite rest to be lifted out of the agony I am in and be cared for someone I could perfectly trust. But I cannot accept a devotion which fails to awaken in me aught but simple gratitude and friendliness. Unfortunately for me, and perhaps unfortunately for him whom I cannot trust myself to name, I have given my whole heart. She choked back the words with a certain wildness. Then she faced me with mournful dignity, and avowed calmly, and with a certain finality which caused my hopes to sink back into the depths, from which they had so inconsiderately sprung. I have fixed my heart, where perhaps I should not. Pity me, but do not blame. I blame. I, who had committed the same folly, was suffering from the same mistake. He may be the one true heart amongst them. Sometimes I think he is. Sometimes I think his faults are blemishes upon a nature noble enough for any love and worship. Then doubt comes, horrible, corroding doubt, and I see in him a fiend, a monster, a being too dreadful to contemplate, much less dream of, and adore. Oh, if I did but know! You shall know, I burst forth, forgetting my own misery and hers. I HAVE BEEN SELFISH IN URGING MY PERSONAL WISHES UPON YOU WHEN I SHOULD HAVE BEEN OCCUPIED WITH YOURS. HENCEFORTH I SHALL THINK ONLY OF YOU. TO SEE YOU HAPPY, TO SEE YOU AT PEACE, SHALL BE MY JOY, AND PROVE MY CONSOLATION. I CANNOT REJOICE AT THE TASK, IF THE TASK IT CAN BE CALLED. BUT FROM THIS DAY ON MY ENERGY SHALL BE DEVOTED TO THE SETTLING OF THAT DOUBT WHICH, WHILE IT EXISTS, ROBS YOU OF ALL PEACE OF MIND. "'If Alfred is the guiltless man we are fain to believe him, you shall know it. "'I believe that it is possible to prove him so, "'and my feelings have often been very reliable guides in difficult undertakings.' "'She was startled. She was more than startled. She was alarmed. "'I don't understand you,' she cried. "'What can you do? "'If the one guilty heart among my cousins refuses to respond to the appeal made to it by my uncle—' HOW CAN YOU HOPE TO MOVE SO CALLOUS A SOUL TO A SENSE OF ITS DUTY? I CANNOT. WITH THE HAND OF THE LAW RAISED IN THREAT AGAINST HIM, HE WOULD BE THROWING AWAY HIS LIFE TO PROCLAIM HIS guilt TO ANY ONE NOW. IT WOULD BE FOLLY ON OUR PART TO EXPECT IT. BUT THERE ARE OTHER MEANS BY WHICH THIS QUESTION MAY BE SETTLED. WE DO NOT GATHER FIGS OF THORNS OR GRAPES OF THISTLES. CONSIDER THEN IN WHICH OF THESE THREE BEASTS THE THORNS ARE FOUND THICKEST, and if uncertainty yet remains, to which of our cousins your uncle's death offered the greatest release. Have I not already asked myself these questions? Have I not repeated them over and over in my mind, till their ceaseless repetition has well nigh maddened me? I think I know George, yet I dare not say he has a heart incapable of crime. I think I know Alfred, and I think I know Leighton. BUT WHAT CERTAINTY CAN THIS IMAGINARY KNOWLEDGE GIVE ME OF THE INTEGRITY OF MEN, WHO HIDE THEIR BEST IMPULSES UNDER WILD WAYS, OR CLOUDS THEM WITH plausible HYPOCRISIES? THERE IS NOT AN OPEN SOUL AMONG THE THREE, AND UNLESS ONE OF THEM CONSENTS TO CONFESS HIS CRIME, WE CAN NEVER FEEL SURE OF THE TWO TRUE MEN WHO ARE GUILTLESS. THAT IS, I NEVER CAN. I SHALL BE HAUNTED BY MY DOUBTS, JUST AS I AM TODAY and to be doubt-haunted is misery, the depth of which you cannot judge unless you know my history. And that I cannot ask for, I began. Yet why should I keep it from you? You have earned my confidence. You are and are likely to remain my only friend. Then why should I hold back facts well known to those who come in daily contact with me? I am unfortunate in having a father who is no father to me. From earliest childhood till I left him to come to New York, I had never received from either parent a caress which was more than a formality. My father's lack of sympathy rose from the mortal disappointment he suffered, when of his two children it was the girl, and not the boy, who survived the illness which prostrated both. My mother—but I will not talk of her. She has been dead a dozen years." Only you will believe me when I say that all tokens of affections were lacking to my childhood, and that the first word expressive of warmth and protection came to me from the cousin who met me at the train, the day I entered upon my new life in my dear uncle's home. Do you wonder this unexpected tenderness blinded me a little to faults which I had no reason than to think would ever come to anything worse? I rose to leave. My self-control was not strong enough for me to bear up against these repeated attacks. As I did so, I said, Miss Meredith, you have heard my promise. May I be prospered in my undertaking, for success in it means not only satisfaction to myself, but great relief to you. Why do you tremble? I fear. I dread your interference. Sometime I wish never to know the truth. YOU WILL CALL ME INCONSISTENT, UNREASONABLE. INDEED, I KNOW I AM, BUT WHAT CAN YOU EXPECT FROM A GIRL UPON WHOM THE BLESSING OF GOD HAS NEVER RESTED? THIS WAS A NEW PHASE IN HER NATURE, THE MORE DISTRESSING TO ME THAT, KNOWING LITTLE OF WOMEN, I DID NOT UNDERSTAND HER. SHE SAW THE EFFECT OF HER OUTBURST, AND MELTED IMMEDIATELY. THIS IS A BAD RETURN FOR YOUR GENEROSITY, SHE CRIED. ASCRIBE IT TO MY WEAKNESS AND THE DREAD I FEEL, LEST HE... THE GUILTY MAN, I INTERPOSED, IS NOT A SUBJECT FOR SYMPATHY. BUT HE WHOM YOU LOVE IS NOT THE GUILTY MAN, I BRAVELY assured HER. TAKE MY WORD AND MY HOPE FOR THAT. A MAN WHO COULD WIN YOUR REGARD HAS NO SUCH BLACK SPOT IN HIS BREAST and bowing over her hand, I escaped before she could propound any of the many questions my declared purpose was likely to call up. End of chapter 16 End of book 1 The Shadow